I'm, I'm sharing tonight just, just a bit of, of what I, I learned in those four weeks of study I had in, in July. Um, count, at a council meeting, there's always a report after any sabbatical, so I'm going to have a more detailed report to all of council a week from Monday night, I guess. So these were four of six weeks of sabbatical I had for this year, and since sabbaticals are are pretty common among pastors and professors, but pretty much nobody else, I thought I'd, I'd start with just a little bit of a, of a definition of, of sabbatical. And, and to get there, uh, we have to actually, it might surprise you, go to God's Word, to the Bible. Um, way back in the Old Testament, um, in Leviticus, um, in Leviticus 25, the first five verses, and I'm going to start here, and then as we go through the sermon, I'm going to pick up a variety of other Scripture texts uh, throughout the Bible that kind of encapsulate some of the themes that stood out in our time and in my learning in July. So we're starting here. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land, I'm going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your unattended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. The word sabbatical, and maybe this is obvious to everyone, but I kind of wonder, it comes from Sabbath. And at creation already, God introduced the idea of the Sabbath rest, right? As he created in six days and rested the seventh, so we are to rest on the seventh day, every seven days, with the resurrection that became from Saturday to Sunday. And based on that weekly pattern in what we just read, the Lord established a Sabbath year for the land in Leviticus 25. The land in Israel was to remain unplanted every seventh year to rest. And I'm not, I, I don't know, we, uh, Pete Boer might be able to be an answer to this. I'm no expert in agriculture. Pete Boer knows a lot about that with his Iowa origins. But from what we know today, this is proven to be beneficial to the land and to crop production long term, to not just year after year after year plow and plant and harvest, but to allow the, the land to rest and, and to breathe. So a sabbatical is based on all of that. Sabbath rest. A time to rest, to rejuvenate. A lot of pastors have sabbaticals. It's something that most denominations recommend to their churches for long-term spiritual health for both pastor and congregation. If you're interested in, in sabbaticals and what other churches do and have, actually, if you go to our denomination's website, crcna.org, 
you'll find about 90 different sabbatical policies, sample policies from different CRCs. And our, our church has had the policy we have since um, before I arrived. For how long before, I don't know. I think for a long time. And by our policy, council has to give its blessing six months in advance for planning purposes. So a pastor thinks it through in the church. So this July sabbatical uh, was discussed last December already, if you can believe it. A sabbatical is not a vacation. We are asked and we do work full-time, full weeks, those Sabbath sabbatical weeks. But instead of a normal pastor's week with sermon and worship preparation, visits, meetings, phone calls, any number of administrative things in between, a sabbatical just focuses on research and study. You might be interested to know that this is especially important in our churches, our meaning Reformed churches, because the Reformed tradition has always valued what we call an educated clergy. And that, that's not true in all churches or traditions. And it's not, there's not a, a good or a bad to what different traditions do. But in our tradition, you have to go to college. You have to get a master's degree. So continuing in a lifelong education is something that the churches of our denomination tend to want for their pastors. And we believe it ultimately benefits the churches too. So, some of these themes that stood out. The first is, is, is fellowship. Some, um, listen to Hebrews 10.25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. God's people meeting together. That fellowship is really important. As a pastor, uh, going to other churches sometimes is important because we're always, of course, in our own church. We visited um, three different Christian Reformed churches uh, while we were in Grand Rapids. And I chose each one for a variety of reasons, but especially because they are different from one another. They're different from faith. But not just because they were different, but because they are known for being healthy churches that have good, solid worship and excellent preaching. I spoke to uh, the pastors at each one of these churches. You see Madison Square, Church of the Servant, Elger Park. Elger Park is where my sister Rebecca goes and has for a number of years. And that, that was really neat because um, a number of people met me who had been praying for me when I was in, in the throes of the big surgery a few years ago. They actually had a prayer room where people took notes of who they were praying for when. And, and Rebecca gave me some pages out of that prayer notebook about six months ago. And so there were a few people. That, that was just a real, a real treat, a blessing to me, and I, I think to them as well. Beyond that, we had some good fellowship with some folks at Kelvin's Library in the seminary apartments. A lot of my fellowship, and the pictures aren't going to reflect this, but I want to tell you, a lot of the fellowship was 
with books in the library. And honestly, I remember sitting, there's this one table I always went to, Heckman Library in Kelvin College, and I was going to take a selfie with, with like books behind me, and I just, I just didn't do it. But now for this, I'm like, oh, I wish I had to prove that I was there. But um, in that very first, so we stayed, see it says Herman Bavinck Hall, that is the seminary apartment building we stayed in. They named them all after theologians and professors. Bavink is, is great. And then in that corner, that gold, the William, we were in the William M. Hines apartment, who was a professor of practical theology from, uh, say, 1902 to 1926. So these, that was, they don't, do that so much these days anymore, I think, with seminary professors and so forth. But um, the very first day, kind of interesting, I met a student, and this is just the the connections you make, a student who was living in that apartment building, and uh, he said he was from Villa Park. Like, what? You know, we just came from there. He goes to Lombard CRC, um, Dave Zichterman. And I later learned he's a friend of, of Brandon Van Dyke. In fact, I noticed this later. See that right there? There's a reflection of someone. That was Dave Zichterman waiting for us to finish our, our um, photo there. He's, uh, he's studying to be a minister. He just interned, I believe, at um, the Morrison CRC that's in our classes. And he, if they're still vacant, he'd be very much open to serving there in that church that needs a pastor. I met other pastors on sabbatical. I had excellent conversations with them. Um, uh, Peter Yunker, who just became senior minister at LaGrave CRC in Grand Rapids. I used to play basketball with them when I was in seminary. Reverend Tim Blackman, He's the CRC pastor at the Protestant church in The Hague, the Netherlands. Um, I know him well. I had lunch with my doctoral advisor, Richard Muller. I spoke to four or five of my old seminary professors. I sat in Jewel Maidenblick's office. He's the president of Calvin Seminary. And, And each one of those were excellent and I think really important connections for me, for them. And and it, it helps with the unity of the church. And, and this is all good for our church too because in what I'm doing and what I'm sharing, I'm representing Faith CRC. And I'm, I'm telling them in every conversation just about the work here and, and the church. Um, you know, we meet together as believers. We encourage one another, says God's Word. That was a valuable piece of this month in between some of the other things. Family, of course, was part of the fellowship too, as you might expect. We have a lot of family in this area, and that's why it worked out good for Sarah and the girls to be with me. They were with family pretty much every day. I joined them on family events many evenings and every weekend. Sarah's sister, who's in Denver, came to town for a week or two, as did my brother from Seattle. We had dinners, birthday parties, we hung out. We keep up with our family by uh, email, by phone, but there's nothing like hanging out in person. We saw each of our three uh, 
my, our grandparents, my kids' great-grandparents. On the top is my grandpa Post, Paca. Um, bottom right is my grandma Shuringa. My grandpa Henry died in June. You remember I went to Grand Rapids for that. And this is Sarah's grandma, Arnauds. So that was very precious time. Um, she is about 84 or 85. Paca is 90, lives in Sarnia, Ontario, and still drives from there to Grand Rapids. So that's, that's quite, quite a blessing, really. I did some, <clears throat> one of the areas I did some uh, reading and reflection on and study of was weddings and funerals, um, since I do a fair amount of those every year. I want to focus on a little bit of what I learned about on funerals, the theology of funerals. Listen to Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. These verses are about the death of one of God's children. A book that really stood out that I read was by, a, he's actually a very well-known theologian, Thomas Long, on the Christian funeral. It came out just a couple of years ago, accompanied them with singing. And it really helped me to be able to, after some years now to step back and reflect on death and dying and funerals, especially since I, I, it was helpful because I just did some of that in a very personal way uh, with my grandfather going home to the Lord. After, he's got a lot of biblical and, and theological stuff, but then it kind of comes to this, this really helpful thing, I think, I'm going to share a little bit with you, where he suggests that every funeral should have a certain eight purposes to be a good funeral. And I can give you those eight. Now, whenever you go to funerals, you can do the checklist. No, it's not, it's not for that. But for me, it was a very helpful tool to evaluate funeral services, uh, funeral sermons. These eight purposes of the funeral service should also be the eight purposes, he says, of a funeral sermon. And all of this is based on a lot of study of God's Word about it. I'll just, I'll just share a few, and I think it will make sense to you. One, there should be a charismatic purpose. Charisma, that refers to the gospel. So that means in a funeral, the gospel should be proclaimed, like we do on Sundays, but in a more personal way, right, for the family. The third of those eight was an ecclesial purpose. The church is somehow involved. The communion of the saints. We don't pass through the valley of the shadow of death alone, do we? Seventh, he said there's a missional purpose. A funeral is not a stopping place for the people of God, but it's a way station on the journey of faith. We're sent out to go back to work serving in God's word. The eighth purpose was educational. We learn again who God is in Jesus, who we are. We learn again the nature of our hope, the power of the resurrection, and 
And learning those things, that, that's a reminder for all of us, even if we're close to the Lord. But at funerals, as you know, when a family comes together, people, there are people at all different places in their faith. And, and as I am involved in funeral service, I always assume there are people who don't know the Lord. And, and so you want to share who Jesus is and, and, and what he's done. I read a number of other books, too, and a couple of those were about the nature of the church. You have to be really careful about these books. There's dozens, hundreds of them out there. They come out every year, and they often will claim to have the answer about how to do church. I'm a lover of church history, and I can very easily get annoyed by these books because they act like they're coming up with brand new ideas when they're really not. But it's good to stay up with things a bit, and it can make you think and improve. And these sorts of books, I do always read them. They always get my wheels spinning about our church and our worship and our ministry. The book Simple Church is based especially on the idea in Matthew 11.30 where Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And the summary of the whole thing is we shouldn't make church be too complicated. It should be straightforward, a clear purpose, a clear mission. And, and, I, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think and hope that we have that to a great extent at faith. I think of that hopefully simple, easy to grab onto, three-part mission, experience God's word, express God's love, equip God's people. And, and we, we believe those three aspects of the church are also dimensions of the Christian life that glorify God, that make a healthy Christian. And, and so we want to be fed by God's word. We want healthy Christian fellowship. We want to be equipped to serve. And, and so people should be able to come to worship, and it shouldn't be too complicated. There should be a clear message. should be simple ways to connect and to serve. You know, and I, we're, what are we about at Faith? We're about God's Word and God's love and serving others. That's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Keep it simple, Christian. I think there's a saying like that anyway. How are we doing on all that? You know, that it makes you think. It makes, makes me think. Acts 2 describes the early church as being together, meeting together, um, breaking bread together, which gets at the theme of another book about the church that's been very big in recent years. There have been conferences on it, and it sounds goofy, of course, the first time you hear it. Sticky church. It's trying to emphasize a good thing, though, the importance of fellowship and care in the church. And it talks about, you know, sometimes people slip out of churches because they're not connecting. In other words, the church isn't sticky. And this book talks about all sorts of churches out there who want to grow and bring in new people and, and how pastors and leaders can be totally focused on that. But the reality is those churches can have a very big back door that people can slip out of. That's a real problem when we neglect the people who are already in the church, always looking for the, the people out there. It should be both, but 
small groups is really emphasized in this book as a crucial ministry to help people connect. And I know we found that as a church helps them stick to a church. So as a church, you know, to me, we got to be sure that we're providing good care for the people here and that people are growing in relationship with one another and God as well as think about those out there. Being in Michigan in summertime, uh, we had opportunity to enjoy God's creation Psalm 104 is just an awesome psalm of nature. This verse says, He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. We experience God in nature in some amazing ways in July too. And one was in the most harrowing car ride of my life. It was Sunday night, July 13. We were driving later in the evening from Allegan, Michigan, north, that's where my parents are, north to Grand Rapids and Calvin College where our apartment was. We got closer to the city. There was lots of lightning ahead. I told Sarah, check the weather on your phone. It just said scattered thunderstorms. I'm like, all right, but sure seems like something more is going on. I'd never, ever seen bolts of lightning like that straight down ahead of us, thick and wide. It was so bad that I thought, I know like when you're in a car, those wheels are rubber, right? So I guess you're fine from lightning. But still, we were on a highway. We were way up, and I thought, that seems a little dangerous. So I thought I should go down off the exit and out of the surface street. So I got off and was going to find another way there rather than being up high. And that was a really big mistake. It looked like we landed in a war zone. If you know the different communities in Grand Rapids, it was Kentwood. We very quickly saw a trampoline wrapped around a street sign, huge trees on the ground, flooding everywhere. In fact, we went through a a puddle because there was nowhere else to go, and it was more than a puddle. It was too deep. So on top of all this, our minivan engine started hesitating. The check engine light was flashing. I was not as calm and cool and collected as a father should have been. It took an extra hour to drive around these downed trees and flooded streets. We learned the next morning that right where I had gotten off the highway, a tornado that they did not anticipate or see had touched down, and it had made 50 homes uninhabitable. And it probably was 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes before we got there, because we were there around little after or before 10.30, and it touched down at 10.30. So we were shown, as big as that was, just a small taste of God's total power, but we were shown a huge taste and measure of His hand that, that He spared us coming so close to that danger. Many more enjoyable experiences with nature prevailed Uh, especially for me, um, time to fish on the small lake my parents live on outside of Allegan, Minkler Lake. I went for bass as usual and did decently well. Hannah, my second oldest, got her typical quota of nine or ten fish an outing. She always uses a very special secret lure that we have as a family. She caught a combination of nice-sized bluegill, a sunfish, 
beautiful crappie here, and then bass, usually about 8 to 11 inches in size. But in terms of fishing, Sophia, who's my third, and she's seven, she had, all I can say, it was her coming out fishing party that day. Um, That's my dad, and you can barely see the fish there. That's about the size fish she was catching, but 12 fish in one day, six on the little fishing boat, six on the dock, including when no one else was around, her first good-sized bass, 12 or 13 inches, which bass get a lot bigger, but they're very strong, and it scared the daylights out of her because of that, but she survived it. She's a stronger fisherman for it. As you know, when I, as you may know, when I first arrived here at Faith, I was just finishing up my doctoral dissertation. I haven't had too many requests to check it out of my office and read it, and that's fine, but it's there if you want to see it. It's a really important area, I feel, of church history that I was able to study. And in a second, you'll see a bit of, of what it's about. Um, there was more I could have done on this in this area, but I just was able to do a little bit because I was focusing on stuff more directly related to the church. But one thing is I found myself footnoted in an article. So that's kind of exciting. So it's really hard. It's hard to read there, but see G.D. Schuringa, and that's the title of my dissertation there on an aspect of the work I studied that came out a few years ago. You know, Paul tells Pastor Timothy, and you'll see how this relates, something interesting in First. Timothy 4.16. So this is to a pastor, young pastor. Watch your life and doctrine closely, he says to this pastor. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And as a pastor, I, I, I want to take that seriously and grow in both. It's really important, I believe, to my calling. And, and it's it's why I studied what I did when I did my doctoral work. If you look back closely at this title, I studied someone who was in the Netherlands. This language, embracing, there's Dutch in the title, Lair and Leven. Embracing Lair and Leven is the theology of such and such guy. That means life. Lair, well, Lair is doctrine or teaching, and Laven is life. And, and I really hope, and you know, that's, that's right, right from that verse, life and doctrine. Um, and I, I really hope and trust that in, even in this July, I took strides in both life and doctrine, both my walk with the Lord and my knowledge of Him and His Word as I, as I stepped away from the, the day-to-day routine. I spent some time, probably equivalent of a couple of days, in worship planning, since that's a big part of the day-to-day work here. Um, Paul also says to Timothy, two verses earlier, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and devote yourself to preaching and teaching. And, And so I spent time doing research and thinking of ideas for a new sermon series for us uh, for morning and evening, starting in September through uh, Christmas, and the plan is, I don't have quite the title, but something like Old Testament heroes of the faith in the morning. So Noah, you know, 
and, and really I'm excited about looking at these in a very, what I hope is a very sound way. It's very easy to find books out there on, you know, people in the Bible and like, hey, you just do what they did and everything's going to be good. Well, there's a little deeper stuff going on in God's Word, pointing us head to Christ. In fact, to call them Old Testament heroes of the faith, that's not quite right because you don't want to do a lot of what they did. But nevertheless, God used them and they exercised their faith. So the Lord willing, we'll be doing that leading up to Christmas in the morning. And uh, at night, we'll be doing a study of the book of James. Um, so I'm excited about each one of those. With worship planning, since I, I, I take the lead on the newer songs with the worship team, I, I needed to spend some time planning for worship team music. Uh, Matt Voltheis, Mike Prince, and I, and the rest of the team have a number of songs we're excited to sort through and learn and introduce to the congregation in the upcoming months. I also read, and I'm going to end with this, uh, one other book that I read, a real classic book that you maybe have heard of and maybe you've even read it, A Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And, and that really helped me reflect on, on, on the heart of it all for us as Christians and, and for the church and sort of cut through all the, the thinking you can do and the wheels spinning and the planning and the details and the complications of, of church and people's lives and ministries. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul gets at the heart of things there when he says this, we preach Christ crucified. We do it in word and in deed. We're called to do that together and to build one another up in that. And I have the job with the elders of equipping the church to do that better as your pastor. And my prayer is that I am doing that, that I grow in doing that all the time. Mere Christianity is a really excellent reminder of what our faith is all about. And if you haven't read it or you haven't read it recently, it's not long. I'd encourage you to do it. It'd be edifying. It defends the faith in a very wonderful way against those who don't believe. It was written, I think, in the 50s or earlier, but amazingly relevant to our times today. We're... uh, you know, and it defends the faith and talks about it in a way that kind of cuts through what is essential and what is not. What is at the core of our faith and life in the church and what is not. And I think that too is increasingly important for us today. We are, as a church here at Faith, we're a Reformed church. And I hold to the Reformed faith. I believe without a doubt that the Reformed faith is the best expression of what the Bible teaches. I want us to be a distinctively Reformed church, yes. But in our preaching and teaching and ministry and reaching out and gathering, we want to especially be focused on the core of the Gospel, what is common to all Christians. Because it's ultimately not about a tradition or this or that tradition, but it's about Jesus. It's about Him crucified. It's about God being glorified 
as we lift up Christ and his word. And this book and reflection on it was, was a very good, good reminder of all of that. My family and I, they're not here tonight. They'll be back there, so if you have some additional questions, you can talk to them in the narthex. We're, we're really grateful for the opportunity to have left the busyness of church life behind for a few weeks. I think we grew closer to each other and our extended family, and we were built up in our faith and equipped, I believe, to serve here better than ever. I'm excited about our future together in this church as we together persevere in life and in doctrine until Jesus returns or calls us home.